to another episode of High Stakes with Steve Rosenberg. This is where we talk about real life, real business, and most importantly, real solutions. Now, I think we all know as entrepreneurs, or if we're trying to be entrepreneurs, that nobody has a cookie cutter life, right? Like you don't get a manual that says, okay, this is how you're going to live your life from beginning to end. And I think that even if we had that manual, it'd probably get thrown out on day two because we know that it doesn't work and you have to fix challenges as they arise, whether they're financial, personal, whatever they are. Look, the reality is, is things happen, right? Life happens. And I was taught early on that you can't always change what happens to you, but you can change how you react to things that happen to you in life and how you react to these things are what show the type of person that you are and what you do from that point forward. Because everybody can have good luck, bad luck, no luck. You're going to have something happen in your life. And my guest today is a perfect example of things that could be dealt many, many different directions. But again, took this and just killed it in the world of business, despite all the things and I'm sure what people told him and everything else in his life. And this guy is living, breathing proof to me that you can do anything that you put your mind to with consistency, with positive thinking, with really going after what you want and not focusing on what you don't want. So my good friend, Weldon Long is here today, and he is going to talk about his life, what he's done, and more importantly, what he's doing now and how he's just conquering the world. And you're going to hear at the end that Weldon is actually going to be a guest at my three-day mastermind here in Houston. But first, let's kind of talk to him. Let's get to know what he is, who he is, and what he's about. So Wall, I call him Wally because that's what everybody calls him. Wally, thanks for being on the show today, man. My pleasure, brother. I'm glad to be here. Good to see you. All right. So give everyone the the, the colorful brief overview of who you are, yeah. what you've done, and what you're doing. Well, I guess uh, I'm kind of what you'd call a late bloomer. Uh, I was a high school dropout at 15 years old, ended up in the penitentiary at 23 years old, ended up serving uh, 13 years out of the 15 years from 1987 until 2003, I guess roughly 16 years. I spent 13 of those years behind prison walls. I was a knucklehead and a first class POS and just a real tough case. And about halfway through that 13 years in prison in 1996, my father died, and I decided it was time to make a serious change. I had a three-year-old son that I had fathered when I'd been out for a little parole period earlier on. So my son was three years old, and my father was dead, and it's June of 1996. I was 32 years old, three-time loser, high school dropout, and I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? So I, I got the master plan to start reading. And uh, I started picking up books and studying and learning about the mindset and business from all the great masters. I tell people I started with the Bible and I went through Tony Robbins and everything in between. And seven years after my dad died, I walked out of the penitentiary to a homeless shelter in January of 2003. I got a job. I worked that for a year. The next year, I opened my own company. I grew that to $20 million in revenue. Sold that in 2010, started writing books. I've written three books including a couple of Amazon number one sellers and a New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller. And I spent the last 15 years or so speaking, consulting and building uh, different businesses and just uh, living the dream, as they say, Steve-O, just like, uh, you know, an only in America kind of story. And I, I just, I love your story because it, it just quantifies to me how you can actually 
be someone that you could say you were dealt a bad hand, you can use blame, excuse, denial, whatever it is you want to do, or you can take another path and you can say, you know what, I'm going to be accountable, I'm going to take ownership, and I'm going to take responsibility. And obviously, that is clearly what you've done. It's, let, it's, let me, I, I've got a couple questions yeah. for you because I'm just, I'm very curious. The person that you are today, right, the, the, the Wally that I know today is different than the Wally I would have known in 1986 before you went away. Yeah. Probably different than the Wally that you were between 87 and 2003. Yeah. What has changed in that Wally from 1986, pre getting, you know, major arrested to being in prison, to getting out? What, what is the common thread there? The common thread, uh, it's, a, it's a couple of things, Steve. The real difference, it's the difference that everybody either experiences or they, or they don't if they want to have success. And it's the issue of personal responsibility. If you had known me when I was young in the 1980s and even the first couple of trips to the penitentiary, you would have seen a young person who was entitled, uh, a person who was irresponsible, and a person who took responsibility for nothing. All my problems were, you know, uh, th this institution, this person, a judge, my parents, this, you know, all these different situations. And what really happened in 1996 when my dad died, and I took a good hard look at my life for the first time, like an honest look, what I realized is, is that I am responsible. You know, and it kind of came to me in waves, but eventually I got to the conclusion that if my, if, if my problem with my life was the ex-wife and her boyfriend who were working with the government to, to try to keep me in prison, the, the prosecutor, the judge, anybody else snitches, if, if, if my life, the quality of my life, the miserable quality of my life was, was their fault, then the only way it was going to get better is if they all changed at the same time. Right. <laughs> and that shit didn't seem very likely. Yeah. And then it occurred to me like, wait a second, you know, if all I have to do is change me, if I'm responsible and all I got to do is change me, well, I got a pretty good shot at doing that. And that was kind of the, the moment of clarity, the epiphany that I am responsible. If it is to be, it's up to me. I am responsible. In fact, Steve, when I, when I work with somebody, somebody comes to me and they got a shitty business or a shitty life or whatever it is. And they're like, what's the first thing I got to do? I always tell them the first thing you have to do is identify every role, every part that you had to play in creating this shitty situation. Not what your wife did, not what your dad did, your boss did. What did you do? And some people can see what they did and there's hope for those people. And there's some people who can't see the role and they're, they're, they're hopeless. They're hopeless. So let, let me ask you this. When you're going through these, these mental gyrations, right? As, and again, we haven't gotten to the business side, but just changing who you are, do you go through a point that you want to forgive people or you want to be forgiven when you're going through like, and maybe when, when you're incarcerated, maybe it's more, you know, amplified because that's all you're thinking about, but, or do you go through both iterations of that? I think, I think it's both. So I, I think the, the issue of self-forgiveness uh, is a very gradual process, but before I think you can get there, you've got to forgive everybody else. Like literally I had people in my life that, that I hated, that I wanted to pay a price, you know, and, 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 and get some retribution. I remember when my wife left me with this guy, like I just used to fantasize about how I was going to torture them. I wasn't going to kill them. I was going to torture them. I wanted them to suffer the way I was suffering in prison. And then I started reading a book on forgiveness and how it really only hurts us. I mean, they don't care. They're out there having a ball, right? Yeah. Not affecting them. And this is going to sound corny, 
But one of the techniques that they recommended and I began to try was picture the person or the problem that's causing you a lot of pain, like a balloon on a string. And you're holding that balloon and you're looking up at them and then you let it go and you watch the balloon kind of sail off in, into the atmosphere. And so I pictured my, my wife and her boyfriend and they were working with the government. He was trying to snitch on me and make sure I stayed in prison. And I pictured them on this string and I would let it go. Now there were times, Steve, if I'm being honest, I pictured myself, boom, 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 shooting them out of the sky, right? But over time I learned to let them go. And I learned that you had to forgive. I had to learn to see the role that I played in what they did. That was a big key, right? Yeah. I had to see the, the things I had done that, that made them want to do the things they were doing. And, and then later on, uh, the self-forgiveness was a little bit different for me because one of the things I had to do was like give up any expectations. I mean, I had bullshitted so many people for so long and I'm changing. I'd done that for so many years that I had, I, I had to learn that, that you cannot vindicate yourself. The tendency is when you get your shit together, if you want to call everybody, hey, I got my shit together, I'm different, I'm changed. Nobody's trying to hear it. The only thing that can vindicate you is time, right? Like you have to, you have to prove through your actions that things have changed. So that took a long time when I eventually felt vindicated, when people started coming to me and bringing me back into their life and rebuild those relationships. That's when I was able to do the self-forgiveness, letting go of other people's, the resentments I had toward other people. You know, I just learned that was necessary for survival. Well, and, and I think what happens, I would imagine, is it's kind of the don't tell me, show me, right? I, I hear what you said, you know, people have been, and I've got, you know, yep. friends and family members that have had challenges, and, you know, they can say everything they want to say, but at the end of the day, you got to show me, right? And it's the proof of you getting out, staying out, and actually being a person that is going to be that person that does what they say they're going to do. So, it's crazy. How, how do you transition, right? So now you're fresh out of prison, right? I'm guessing not many people were running up to you saying, hey, Wally, we want to hire you and we want you to build a business. How, how does that transition go? Because the, 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 uh, the rate of people that end up going back to prison is, is very high, as I, I know, and I'm sure you know. How do you break that mold and break that stereotype? Well, you know, the first two times I got out, I did go back. So I was part of that revolving door. Yeah. And it was the third time that sense of personal responsibility and really having specific objectives I wanted to accomplish and, and, and just a, a strong focus on changing my life. In terms of the transition, uh, in January of 2003, I'm 39 years old. Uh, I finished that, my last uh, bit in prison. I had done 13 of those 15 or 16 years. And I'm in a halfway house, a homeless shelter, basically, for people out of prison with no place to go. And I started looking for work. It was very difficult. As you mentioned, people weren't in a big hurry to hire me. It took about six months. And I walk in this little heating and air conditioning company. I didn't know anything about heating and air conditioning. But the guy offered me a job as a residential salesperson to go in and sell these systems. So I, I learned enough about it that I could go in and sell a heating and air conditioning system. And I was really good at it. I started making a lot of money. My very first month, which was July of 2003, I sold almost $150,000 of systems and earned like 12, 13 grand in commissions. I'm like, man, this is... This is crazy. So I did that for a year. And then I decided I wanted to open my own company. If I, I just needed to find somebody who could run the installations, the operation side. And I found that guy. I ran a full page ad in my newspaper on a Sunday newspaper, said air conditioning and furnace blowout sale and put my cell phone number at the bottom, said operator standing by. And I set 16 leads on that Sunday. And I went to work selling those. And then 
the guy I'd hired would do the installations and so on and so forth. And uh, I will tell you this, uh, that I learned, one thing I learned about me is that I have a very high tolerance for risk. And sometimes that's what it takes, right? You got to be willing to take the risk. And so the transition, I won't say it was easy because it took six months to find that first job, but I was so driven, so motivated to get out there and start building something. I built that company to $20 million in revenue. I sold it in 2010. Around that same time, I started writing books and speaking and consulting, and I've built a couple of companies since then. So let me ask you this. When you are being who you are, building that business, are you doing this to be better? And even today, or are you doing it not to be worse? What, which way do you go? Uh, that's a great question. So, you know, I don't live my life in fear anymore, but I do have, I do have like these things that are so hardwired. It's the fear of failure mm-hmm. and like the, the, the fear of everything ending tomorrow. So I think that I am driven by a motive that, you know, I can't ever get behind the eight ball again. Like I got to keep hustling. I got to keep hustling. Now that's changing a little bit. I'm 58 now. And as I get a little closer into 60, it is changing a little bit where I worry about it. Like more, I'm more concerned about quality time with family and and things like that. But I think there is a part, but I I heard this great thing from a a friend of mine that uh, he was a client of mine and became a friend. And we were talking about this one night and he said, you know, do you ever measure backwards? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're always saying you're doing this next year and you're doing that and you're doing that. He goes, have you ever just looked back and measured yourself against where you were five years ago? I'm like, holy shit. No, I've never done that. And he goes, why don't you? And so I started like, well, compared to five years ago, I'm doing awesome, right? I've done all this kind of stuff. And that was a really useful tool to me to get some peace, you know, to, to get some, some peace to like, you know, sometimes we get so caught up in climbing the next mountain, we forget to look back at the shit we've already climbed, you know? And so that was helpful for me. Yeah. You know, they, they say, uh, I forget if it was Goggins or somebody, I remember reading a book and he says, you know, every day you're writing a chapter, a page in your book of your life. The problem is most people never go back and read that book. So they don't, they, they never look back. You know, I, look, you're a high achiever. I, I try to be a high achiever. Uh, you know, I have a hard time celebrating my wins and my victories. They're great. But at the end of the day, I'm sure as you learned, as I learned when I sold my business, and I'm guessing it's the same for you. It wasn't like I got into this club and got this Letterman jacket and everybody was patting me on the back. The next day came around and it was still Monday. Nothing yeah. really changed except maybe, you know, numbers in your bank account. But other than that, my life was still pretty much the same. And you start thinking about like, okay, what is all this for? I mean, you start getting a little bit, you know, you start thinking about these things. And, and one of the things I always think about is, you know, was I pushing so hard to be the best or was I pushing to not fail? And, and it's, and again, I, you know, I think there's probably a balance for me. Um, you know, everyone says they want to be the best, but there's a fear of failure. Everyone has that, you know, I, I think that definitely was part of what motivated me was I was, I was working hard to make sure I didn't fail. So let me ask you this. And, and, you know, your, your background is obviously different than the average business person, but I'm a big believer that everybody has that dark side, right? They've got that, that inner dark side that sometimes drives them to be better than everyone else, almost to show people that I can do this. Not, not maliciously, not anything, but there's that drive. Do you think that exists in people? Do you think sometimes the dark side overtakes other people and that will cause them maybe to not succeed? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree that everybody's got this, uh, 
this this dark side as you describe it inside of them. And I, I think it's necessary to some degree. And I, I think we we might typically see it come out if someone was protecting their family or a friend or something like that. People are capable of doing whatever you know has to be done. The the issue that you raised does the dark side does it undermine their success? And I think the answer to that is if we're not careful, then yes. And that's clearly what happened to me, right? Like the dark side for me was a sense of entitlement and a lack of sense of responsibility. And those characteristics caused me to, to do things, to cut corners, to somehow believe that I was entitled to a certain level of success without being willing to do the work. And so I think those, those dark characteristics, those, you know, nobody's perfect. We all have these shortcomings and, you know, deficiencies or whatever. And I, I think it can. I think if you don't keep it in check, you know, one of the things that, that I learned in prison, for example, is, you know, you got to kind of adopt a personality, you know, kind of a, not necessarily a tough guy, but, you know, you got to adopt a personality that I'm not going to be toyed with and I'm going to defend myself and I'm not going to be your bitch and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, the problem is sometimes you come out of prison and I've worked with a lot of guys that have done prison time and it's like that part of you that can come out like in real society, like it might need to come out once in your lifetime. Right. The problem is, is that sometimes that comes out on a daily basis at the supermarket and, and that shit doesn't fly in the real world. And so what I've learned is that I think we all have that capacity in us, you know, to defend, to do whatever, but I think it only has to be used rarely in, in normal common society. So if, let's just say we, 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 I don't know if it's able to chop off the, the prison time and you started as an entrepreneur and I know mentally, obviously you're going to carry that. Um, did you have a bit of imposter syndrome when you were trying to talk to people, trying to build your business, thinking in the back of your head, like these effing people, they, they, they know I'm a felon. They're not going to work with me. They're not going to give me the contract. They're not going to trust me. How, did you have that? And if so, how'd you deal with that? Yeah, I think uh, I thought I had the scarlet letter, but I, I think the real issue was trusting myself. Yeah. What I've learned, Steve, is that we all have kind of this homeostasis, this comfort zone. And I think about it like a like a thermometer. Right. And like, let's say 74 degrees is your comfort zone and something in your life comes along and knocks you out of your comfort zone. You get divorced or you lose your job or your dog dies or or whatever. And all of a sudden you're at 70 degrees. Well, we don't just lay there and suffer. Right. We we get back on that horse. We get a new wife. We get a new job, a new business, a new house, right? We get back to that comfort zone because it feels uncomfortable down here. But here's the problem with it. Sometimes something in life can come along, a, a better way of living, for example, that can raise that temperature to 80 degrees, right? It's better than a 76 degrees. But here's the problem. It feels just as uncomfortable as the 70 degrees because it's out of our comfort zone. Right. And when that happens, a lot of times people will self-destruct, right? They, they, they'll, they'll, kind of, they'll kind of have a meltdown and they'll end back at that 70, 76 degrees. So we got to be careful. When I started having success in my life, the imposter syndrome for me was thinking, who the hell are you kidding? I, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. When I finished the manuscript of my first book, it was in 2008, and I had a condo out in Maui, and I'd gone out there, and I was doing all my writing out there, and I, and I finished it. And I had a, this enormous sense of, man, I've, I finished a book. And I went down to this restaurant, Mala, uh, on Maui, one of my favorite little restaurants right on the ocean. And I went down there to have a little celebratory dinner. I was by myself because whenever I write, I, I, I need to be alone. And I'm sitting there and in comes walking Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac and some guy who was you know, probably a business partner agent or something. And they sat down right next to me. And I sit there thinking like, who the hell are you kidding? Right? Who, you're just the, the convict dropout. 
And I started all the old tapes started instead of enjoying like, wow, I'm at the same restaurant as Mick Fleetwood. I just finished this book. Uh, it was re really kind of crazy. And yeah. like the imposter syndrome I had was me thinking I was the imposter. It wasn't even the other people were seeing me as an imposter. I saw myself as an imposter because I was out of my comfort zone, even though it was better, it was out of my comfort zone. Fortunately, I caught myself and I didn't self-destruct because that's what happens a lot of times with people. You see somebody yours who really struggles and he finally gets a decent job and a nice apartment and a nice girlfriend. And what does he do? He screws it up and he, he screws the whole thing up and goes back to where he was because even though it's better, it's uncomfortable sometimes. Well, and I think what happens a lot of times, you know, self-destruct, I would say self-sabotage, where they'll jump back in their business, start ripping things apart, basically dismantling what they built for the ego and pride to say they're needed. But the reality is, is it's again, it goes back to ego and pride that, that is causing them to do this. So point. as you're building this business, what were some stumbling blocks that you ran? So people that are watching this, maybe they're building a business. And maybe they didn't have the the hard upbringing, and I could I'm sure there are people going, well, he he's he was successful because he was in prison, and that's why he's actually successful. So anyone can put that spin that you want, but the reality is, is when you started a business, you were at the zero line with everyone else, despite all the bullshit that you had going on in your head, you were essentially at a zero line with every other new entrepreneur before you started telling yourself negative thoughts or you know trying to overcome things. How did you keep scaling and keep going further and further to build a $20 million business? Well, I think it's, by the way, there, there's very little convict privilege in society. So I don't know how much going to prison helped me do anything, yeah. but it did give me a drive for sure. Uh, so one of the things that I was fortunate enough, and honestly, Steve, it's by dumb luck because it's all that I knew. From the day I started that heating and air conditioning company, that first company, I never considered myself to be in the heating and air conditioning business. I consider myself to be in the sales and marketing business. And we happen to install furnaces and air conditioners. And what I think most people don't get about a small business, they have a great idea. They got a great product, great service. And they spend all their time getting the perfect office and the perfect business cards and the right computer and all that stuff. And they do everything except sell. Right. And nothing happens till something gets sold. And so I think, because selling was the only thing I knew. I didn't know anything about the mechanics of heating and air conditioning, right? I wasn't like a technician that got into that business and absorbed myself in the technology. I didn't know any of that. So I focused on setting leads and closing business. And I think that's the, the, the number one thing I think with small business is people think that they can open up a store, a storefront, hang out their shingle. They got a great product, got a great service, and people are just going to beat down the doors to come buy their stuff. It's just not true. You have to have a bias for selling and generating business. And I happen to have that. And the reason we were able to scale is I'm like, I'm going, I'm going to town. I'm selling. You guys better figure out a way to, to handle the operations, you know, to manage this, the, the, these installations. And that's, and that, that's true to this very day. I focus on, I have, uh, when COVID started, I opened another heating and air conditioning company because my speaking and traveling, you know, kind of dried up during COVID. So I opened a heating and air conditioning company. This is our third year. And we're going to, we're going to do $10 million this year. And when I'm at that office, like I was for a few hours this morning, I'm not talking to guys about how to do installations or fix a furnace. I don't know that stuff. <laughs> Other guys know that stuff. What I did is spent three hours this morning teaching my guys how to sell and build relationships and add value because that's the part of the business that a lot of small entrepreneurs overlook. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny. I always, I use the hamburger analogy of, you know, you can make the best burger. You open up a stand next to McDonald's. Who do you think is going to be around in a year? Right. 
It's not going to be you. It's not because they make a better burger. It's because they're a better marketing machine. Listen, I, frankly, I think it's rare that the best product and service wins. The Absolutely. best marketing and sales team wins. Yeah, 100%. They can have an inferior product, but if they get yeah. a better marketing plan and sales plan, they're going to outperform. So let me, let me ask you this. From the day that you started your business, right, day, you know, when you were a $50 business to when you became a $20 million business, and I don't know if you can remember this, but I'm just curious, what did your day look like back then when you started? And then what did your days look like when you were basically ready to sell? How, you didn't grow a third arm, so you didn't physically change, but you mentally changed. So I'm curious the person you were on day one to the person you were on day end. Uh, I would say that now, because I'm thinking about my age, I was, that right. was an age of, you know, 40 to, to 45. So I was, you know, quite a bit younger than I am today. And I, I think as far as my, my average day actually looked pretty much the same. Okay. Because, again, because I got into an industry I knew nothing about, I had, I had, I was forced to delegate, I couldn't jump in and do the service calls or do the installs. I didn't have that ability. I didn't have those mechanical skills. So it forced me to build a management team that could take care of that. And what I started doing was training, developing my sales process and training my salespeople. What changed is I went from training one guy to training five or six guys as we grew, right? But I was having the same conversations. I was just having it with a, a larger sales team. In, in terms of how did I change from day one? Man, when I started that thing, I was, I was a year out of the joint, dude. I was just about the hustle, man. Yeah. I was scraping and clawing and, and just whatever I had to do to try to be successful. Five years later, by the time I sold that company, like I had had some success and I had this, some of the, you know, some of the trappings of a nice life, the home, the cars and different things like that. So I, I think there was a part of me that felt a little more accomplished, but I can tell you this, I was every bit still as hungry. Like that's, as I get older now, it's changing a little bit to where I'm focused more on, you know, enjoying my life. But back then it was like, what's next? Like that was my, my, my next thing, like what's next? Let me, uh, I'm, I'm curious, as, as you were going through this and you, you hit a roadblock, a stumbling block and you're building your business, did you have triggers that would get you back into that mindset of being like, okay, back on the ball, back on the focus, back hitting it again? Did you have anything like that? Because look, we all know when you own a business, you're going to get your ass kicked. You're going to get lied to, ripped off. All these things, which many businesses, as we know, fail within the first five years. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you not only passed that, but you, you know, succeeded. But how did you get past that? Were there triggers? Like, what did you, you know, what did you do? So, you know, I, I never, I never knew that one of the most famous athletes in the world also did this until very recently. But I, I saw a thing on the, the, the mid 90s uh, Chicago Bulls. Mm -hmm. and they were talking about Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan always found something to piss him off about the opponent. And it got to where everybody was so sensitive about it that the opposing coaches and players would tell each other, don't look at him, don't say anything, just completely ignore him. And they talked about how Michael Jordan would like catch somebody looking at him and that, and that he, would, he would turn that into fuel, right? He always had to have that edge. Well, I didn't know that, that he did that, but what I noticed about my first five years in business there is that, Whenever I, whenever there was a crisis or I was felt we were the underdog, I would, I would go into crisis mode. Like I, I would go in like, I'm the underdog. I got to fight back. And I'll give you a perfect example. I opened my company in 2004. In 2007, I purchased four or five of my competitors. And with the consolidation, we were the largest company of our type in Southern Colorado. 
Well, the local contracting and the building community did not like me. They didn't know me. What they did know is I'd been to prison. So in their mind, I was convict scum. And they didn't like the fact that I was dominating that industry, right? I was killing all the other heating and air conditioning companies. So in 2007, I get a letter from our uh, county commissioners and building department that they want to review my license. I'm like, well, that's, that's cool. So I go into this meeting and I see all the guys up on the dais up there that they're all my competitors. They own companies and they're also on this mechanical committee. And they tell me in very certain terms, listen, we know who you are. You're not going to have a company in our, in our, in our county and you can close your company voluntarily or we're going to pull your license. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? We've done nothing wrong. We had a clean business. So I got a lawyer and we went round and round with them for a couple of months and finally they dropped everything because we had done nothing wrong. But when that didn't work, they went to the local newspaper. This is a small town, about a half a million people. They went to the Colorado Springs Gazette and they got the business editor to do an expose on me, right? And he did this big story on whether or not I should be able to have a, a contracting license in the county here. And I go out to get my newspaper. The day, I knew the story was coming out because the reporter had called me. I go out to get the paper. And on the front page of our newspaper, above the fold, Steve, the headline said, Ex-Con's license in the balance. And it had a 20-year-old mugshot of me that was six inches by four inches on the front page of the wow. newspaper. And then when you open it up, an entire page was devoted to every shitty thing, divorce, prison, drop out of high school, everything. This long, long article, like interviewing people from, from 30 years before, it was unbelievable. And in the middle of that page, there was a summary of my criminal record. Well, for the next three years, anytime we would go on a sales call, if one of our competitors was there, there would be a copy of my mugshot with the criminal record on the back of it. Oh, shit. I'm telling you, the, 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 we would have uh, homeowners would tell us, yeah, the other guy was here. And they were like, we don't care who you go with as long as you go with that guy. And that was in 2007. And we had one of our best years in 2007. All I did is I trained my salespeople that when you go to a call, you say, let me tell you a story about the guy that started their company. And you tell my story. You right. position my story this way. Don't let them define us. And we continued to dominate them and the growth. But it was that it was that fighting spirit, man. When when it's when it, when it's you against the world, I'm telling you, man. There's nothing that gets me going than something like that. that. Yeah. So, how do you block distractions? Even today, right? You're you're very well known. You travel all over, but you're still accountable. You got to get shit done, right? I mean, yep. you know, if you're Wally the speaker, but if you own a business, your employees are going. I don't give a shit if you're on the road. You got to make payroll. You got to do. You know, so. How do you block distractions with so many different variables coming at you from so many different angles? It's a great question, Steve. You know, there's an old saying where your focus goes, your energy flows. Yeah. And for businessmen and women, entrepreneurs, focus is critical. And, and the power of consistency, I write about that, that the biggest challenge for people in business and sales, it's not a lack of talent, motivation, or desire. It's a lack of focus. We focus on the wrong things. You got to stay focused. As you mentioned, you got to stay focused on what you're for, not what you're against. So in this book, The Power of Consistency, I talk about a prosperity plan, and it basically is a plan. You divide your life into three major categories, your finances, your relationships, and your health, and you decide what you want in each one of those, and then you decide what you need to do every single day to achieve those things, and you narrow it down to one sheet of paper, focus and simplicity, and then I, I, I teach what I call a quiet time ritual, a morning quiet time ritual. You review that plan, visualize it, visualize yourself doing those things, visualize those outcomes, 
as Napoleon Hill said, imagine yourself already in possession of these things. And what that does is that drives your focus for that day. And if there's anything in your life that comes up that's not on that sheet of paper, it's probably a distraction. So what's going to be on that paper is your family, your business, your finances, your employees, your customers, your personal health, your personal relationships. But if there's anything not on that sheet of paper, it's like it's a distraction. And almost always, if you get caught up in that distraction, it will prove to be negative and deadly, perhaps uh, catastrophic for your life. You've got to stay focused. The only way to do it is through daily review and daily repetition. you got to pound your subconscious brain to stay focused on the things that are important to you that are on that prosperity plan. Otherwise, you're constantly distracted with other, other things. And there's this little motivation in human behavior called cognitive dissonance. It's anxiety when we don't do something we said we would do. If you use your plan every day, you review it. If you step out of that plan, you'll feel that dissonance. And it's like a little alarm bell, like, well, let me get back in line here. If you ignore that alarm bell, bad things are going to happen. You know, I remember when I was uh, building my business and one of my mentors, he were, we were having lunch one day and I believe he was owned 11 businesses. And I remember asking him, I said, I, I don't know how you do it. Like I have one business and it's, it's driving us crazy. I just don't understand. He says, you, you know what we do, right? He goes, you know, the secret. And I'm like, no. And I'm thinking he's going to give me this amazing words of wisdom that I'm just going to, you know, the the clouds are going to part and the, the light is going to shine on my face when he tells me this. And he goes, we say no more than we say yes. He goes, as a matter of fact, it has to be a hell yes before I get involved with someone or something. Yeah. He said, that is why your phone has rang 15 times since we've been sitting here and mine has not rang once. Mm. And I really, I always remember that. And I'm like, you know what? Like, and he says, listen, saying no doesn't mean just no. It could be, I'm not the person to handle that. Let me get you the person who does. That is enough. But he said, you know, it's a matter of the power of focus. And, you know, just like in your book, the power of consistency, it's, it's, it's the power of, I think it's that, that key word, the power of, and I think a lot of people don't realize that word is so important. What you direct it to, that's going to be the main question. Right. Let, right. let me, that's a great uh, another question for you. You, you've been to the Olympics, you've been to the moon, you've done everything that you could do, right? You've, you've hit all the high notes. Now, I know you say that, or you said earlier that you, you know, kind of going off into the golden years, which I don't believe just from what I know about you, but you can say it. But what does, what does someone like you do once you've hit that level? Like, I don't see you saying, you know what, today I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to like, I just don't see you as a, maybe a day or two, but I don't see you as a person who doesn't do anything with their life from here. How do you keep wanting to get up and be better and do more? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Like when my wife and I take vacations, we'll plan this vacation and we're going to go for 12 or 14 days to this island. And after about day three, we're looking at each other like, you know, we could go home early, you know, because there's, there's always something that needs to be done. I, you know, I, I think that what drives me at this stage, there's kind of two things, you know, one is legacy. Like, I want my kids, my wife, when I die, like to really feel like I made a difference. I changed my life and had an impact on the world. I think contributions, another big one, you know, when you have a lot of success and I have people asking this, like, Hey, I got, I'm financially secure. I got a great marriage. My kids are good. Business is good. That's good. Like what's supposed to motivate me? Well, it's, it's that contribution thing, right? That self-actualization that Abraham Maslow uh, talked about, right? At the hierarchy of needs. 
So I, I listen, I'm always working on something. And it's funny, my wife and I, what, what, I don't know what, it was just last week. And there was one day where I really didn't have a lot going on. And we were sitting on the couch and it's like, she's like, what are you going to do today? I'm like, man, this is what retirement feels like. Like, it, I don't like it. So uh, I'll go to my business and go do some training. My guys are all uh, work on some stuff. We've got some stuff we're doing with you and, you know, write an email and shoot a, record a video and try to promote this or that or the other. It's just always, it's always something, but there is a certain element, you know, when the financial pressure is off and you can really just be creative and do the things you want to do. The, the parts of my business that I love, Steve, it's creating content, and delivering content, like everything else is stuff I have to do. The one thing I want to do, so I've really structured my business the last five years that really I just focus on creating content and delivering content and partner with other groups to help sell it and distribute it because I just want to create more content. And that's that seems to work for me. So, yeah, and, and I agree. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it, my, my analogy, because people ask me the same question, there's, you know, Steve, you're an airline pilot, you built a business, sold it, you coach, like, well, how much is enough? Like, how much is enough? And I, my, my answer to them is a shark never stops swimming. You don't, a shark doesn't go to a destination. It's the journey. And the journey is what we're all, look, we're all on a journey. We may not admit it, but everyone in life is on a journey. And a shark doesn't go to a destination. They may go somewhere, but then they keep on going. I think high-level entrepreneurs, people like you, people like myself, I think we're all just sharks swimming around. And I think we're all on a journey. And that is what keeps us going, right? And that's what keeps us moving. Kind of kind of swimming around, lurking around, looking for a surfer at the top of the, top <laughs> exactly. of the surf. Whatever floats on, whatever Good makes attack. us happy, right? Something to um, Yeah. What, what advice have you gotten over the years that you could maybe impart on some people that are listening, watching, that has really stuck with you? That's just resonated that every time there's an issue, a problem, boom, that just pops up and you're like, okay, got to get recentered. What is that? Is there one thing that you've learned that, you know, really resonates? Yeah, and I think you kind of touched on it. So uh, Steve Jobs, before he passed away, he was interviewed and asked, you know, what was the key to success at Apple Computers? And he said, uh, focus in simplicity, right? But then he said, that sounds easy, but it's actually very, very difficult to stay focused and to keep things simple because there's always the distractions like you talked about earlier. Uh, you know, I, I read one time or heard one time that, that there's never a shortage of new opportunities and ideas. It, it's about, you know, selecting the ones that you can really, that you can really excel at. There's always just too many opportunities. People call them with this idea and that idea. And it's really focused and simplifying your business and your life. And so when, when I have a problem, a financial problem, business problem, relationship problem, the first thing I do, the very first thing I do is what role did I play in this happening? I never see myself as a victim. I cause, permit, or allow, CPA. I cause, permit, or allow everything in my life to happen. So if something happens, my first question is, what did I do to contribute to the situation? And then when I can identify that, then I, my next step is I, I got to simplify this problem down to its basics terms. I have to keep it super, super simple. What's the basic solution to make this situation better? How can I improve the situation? And that's how I handle any type of crisis. I never, like, I don't, I don't, I don't think I really lose my shit anymore with business problems, financial problems, you know, payroll and their short money. I'm like, ah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get some over here. We'll move some over here. Just don't worry about it. It'll all work itself out. And I try to keep my cool, but I always look for my responsibility in situations. 
And when my managers come to me and anytime they start saying, well, this guy is, it's not a, he's bad. He's not this. I'm like, well, what have you done to train him up? What have you done to coach him up? Always look for the individual's role in these situations. It's so easy to look at other people as the source of the problem. And we always have a role to play in those problems. Yeah, I, I always say the fish stinks from the head down. You see a bad employee, you see yep. bad culture, look at the leadership and you'll see exactly where that problem is nine yes, times sir. out of 10. Um, so I've got two final questions for you. And I just want to say, I'm so excited that you're coming to our three-day mastermind here in Houston. I think that so many people are going to get to learn from you and they're going to get to get the inside of, of Wally. And I, I mean, I know you and I have met in person and I, I mean, just a bunch of us hanging out. So I can't wait to spend the day with you hanging out. So, uh, I, again, it's going to be great for those of you that want to know, you can reach out to me. I'll tell you, we have a couple seats left for our three-day mastermind here in Houston, Texas. Uh, we'll tell you the details. If you want to know, just reach out to me. You can find me online and send me a DM. Two final questions. The first question, you kind of alluded this already, but I want to kind of really nail this down on you. What would you say when you're done, when you're retired, when you're sunsetting, when people talk about you, what do you want to be known for? Mm. Uh, that's funny you said that because I've specifically done this exercise. It was a, a technique of Stephen Covey to picture your own funeral. Mm -hmm. And what would you want people to say? And I remember when I first read that I was in prison and I had my son and I pictured him as, uh, as a grown up at my funeral. And I pictured my son coming up and what I want my son to say, uh, and I would hope my wife and my daughter would say is that uh, I made a lot of mistakes, but I finished my life strong and I never lied to him and I never left him. Like, that's what I want my family to say. Like I, I was always there. They could always count on me that I never lied and I never left them. I never abandoned, I always had their back. And that to me is like, I mean, there may be a legacy beyond that from books or speaking or something, sure. but what, what really matters to me is that, that they feel like, you know, this dude was solid. We could always count on this guy. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, last question. If you could have a drink with anybody, I don't care if they're alive. I don't care if they're dead. I don't care if they're fake or imaginary or real. doesn't matter. Who would you want to have that drink with? And what do you think you talked to them about? Wow. Uh, I've always been fascinated by Abraham Lincoln and how he managed, you know, he had this big business called a country and it was split down the seams, man. It was like, it was like falling apart. I mean, half a million people died during the civil war, you know, brother against brother, sister against sister. And I just like, I'm fascinated. Like, how do you step back and get your arms around an entire country? Like we struggle with a business with a handful of people working in it. And he was able to get his arms around. I don't know what the population was back in those days, maybe 50 million, hundred million. I don't know whatever it was, but to get your, your, like to simplify the problem enough like, how the hell are we going to solve this problem, you know, and somehow keep this country together? I've always been fascinated by the problem solving and the problem analysis that Abraham Lincoln kind of went through. It's, it's pretty amazing. I'd yeah. be fun to have a cocktail with him.
He's actually come up a couple times. There's there's a couple people that keep resonating with with a lot of the uh, you know high level people like yourself that I talk to. Yeah. He's definitely on the list of of common people with names that come up for sure. By the way, I would have to have Neil Pert and Eddie Van Halen on that list too. I've got Tom Petty. I wish I could. I, <laughs> That's, you know what, I never got to see him in concert and it was on the list and it never happened. And I always will regret that because that is one person I always wanted to see. So sometimes you take action, you know, even, even in your enjoyment, not just business. So that was a lesson for me that not everyone's here forever. And uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta seize that opportunity for sure. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, Wally, thank you so much for being on today. If somebody wants to find you and, and, and read your books, I know obviously if you want to come to Houston and see me and Wally and some other amazing guests, you can do that. But if somebody wants to reach out to you directly, learn about your amazing sales training, your books, everything that you do, wh- where would they find you? Uh, easiest way, you know, social media, Weldon Long on all the social media platforms. My website is WeldonLong.com, W-E-L-D-O-N, WeldonLong.com. And uh, I'm looking forward to coming up. We're going to be talking about this book right here, The Power of Consistency. Yeah. You know, how do, we, how do we overcome adversity? How do we thrive in the face of difficulties? How do, we, how do we stay focused every single day amidst all these distractions that we've been talking about today? So I'm looking forward to having a great time and coming and, and, uh, and learning from you and learning from the other folks you're going to have there. It's going to be a pretty awesome time. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Weldon Long, thank you for being on the show today on High Stakes with Steve Rosenberg. I know everyone got a lot out of this. I got a lot out of this. And that, that's one of the enjoyments of doing these shows is I get to meet some high level people and, and learn their lives and just go down that path. So uh, from myself to you, I just want to thank you for your time and, and you know being on the show and imparting your wisdom on all the guests and uh, everyone else that's watching and viewing. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it very much. All right. And everyone that's watching, listening, wherever you are in Cyberland, this is Steve Rosenberg with High Stakes with Steve Rosenberg. Make sure that you like, comment, share, whatever it is you do in this world, thumbs up, emoji, twitch, whatever the deal is, just do it. You know the drill. Thank you for watching. And we'll be back next week with another guest and another episode of High Stakes with Steve Rosenberg. We'll see you guys then. Bye-bye.